Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the LawCast. This time, we're going back to cover the end of the Vince Russo era of WCW. It's Halloween Havoc 2000. Kyush, wasn't it? How could anyone have imagined that when Vince Russo came to WCW in the fall of 1999, that just one year later, he would be gone, not for the first time, but for the second time? It's baffling on a couple of different levels. The first one is, obviously, as we've covered before, Vince Russo, when he came in, was riding the most implausible, amazing wave of success that anyone in the wrestling business had ever had. No individual writer or booker had ever, ever attained the heights that Vince Russo did in terms of TV ratings and just the amount of money that was pouring in for everything that he wrote. He captured that era to such an amazing degree. But not only is it surprising because of him failing, to switch over your creative director that many times in one year is such a show of like corporate bankruptcy in terms of like, you can't expect someone to actually create their vision in three months. It's like firing a head coach after they lose three games. It doesn't make sense. Yeah, I mean, it's insane that he was removed after it was literally like three months and they dumped him and then they brought him back a couple months after that. But, you know, the last thing from around this time we've covered was Bash at the Beach 2000. That's the night Russo double crossed Hulk Hogan. That was the end of Hogan and Bischoff in WCW. Um, I, it's insane that they kept Russo in place after that, given like the legal jeopardy he had put the company in by breaching Hogan's contract. Yeah, that's the stunning thing, really, is that, like, I completely understand being like, hey, uh, we're going to get sued for millions, so you're fired. Yeah, for cause, br- we're not going to pay you. Yeah, but to bring him back and then drop him again just a couple of months later, like, what are you doing? If you're going to bring him back after all of that heat, then you're attached to this guy. You can't just throw him in the trash again. So, of course, Booker T ended up beating Jeff Jarrett for the title that night at Bash the Beach. That was a nice moment, but... I felt like they had missed kind of the train on Booker by that point. Oh, completely. Uh, 1999 should have been such a big year for WCW. Like, that was the year to, like, reset and be like, all right, we got to push Steiner. We got to push Booker. Like, we were so hot, but these are the guys who are still hot. Let's push them. But, like, yeah. that whole year is just a wasted nothing. They accomplished nothing. None of those guys get pushed until 2000. No. And by then, it's too late. Yeah, when you look at 1999, it's just like Hogan, Flair, Nash, Sting, same old guys in the main event. And I guess I kind of get it. Like, they're trying to recapture the business, so they're going back to the people who worked before, but that's not how you recapture a business. The stars of the last era usually aren't what gets you through the next one. Uh, The next month... August, New Blood Rising was the night where they did the angle where Goldberg walked out of the main event because he, like, quote-unquote, in storyline, didn't want to do the job. That is, to this day, one of the wildest booking decisions that I've ever seen in my entire life. Because he was the babyface. Yeah. Like, that that was a heroic decision because the booker was bad, you see. In storyline, the booker, the mean booker, was forcing Goldberg to do a job, and he should never want to do a job. So we should be on book. He should be on Goldberg's side in him not wanting to do the job on pay per view. Yeah, it's just insanity. Like, that like this is where they had gotten with their storylines. That they're just like, weird that oh yeah, have- wrestling's fake. It's a work, and like, but this is real. 
But if you were ever going to do that with somebody, why aren't you doing it with like Nash, right? Like I got the stroke around here. I'm not doing a job if I don't have to. It's still a stupid ass storyline. But at least like heel Kevin Nash is someone who you would believe would be the kind of asshole who would do that. You're doing it with your top baby face. What are you communicating to the audience? Um, the September 4th, 2000 episode of Nitro, they did a new War Games match they called Russo's Revenge. This was in the triple cage from Ready to Rumble. Have you ever seen this match? Yes, I have seen the triple cage match, yes. I liked it. I thought this it, was good. It wasn't a bad at all. Um, that is the one where Chris Canyon gets thrown off, right? No, that's a different one. Okay, okay, yeah. I have seen this one, too. I just couldn't remember which was which. Yeah. That was the tasteless one, one where they threw him off yeah, the triple in cage City. in yeah. the same arena that Owen Hart died in yeah, just a couple months out. before. Yeah. Yeah. So this was it was a war games match, but it was really every man for itself because it was from the title. They had the belt like hanging from the ceiling. You had to climb up all three cages and get it. And then it was like whoever escaped the cage in possession of the belt won. So not only did you have to go all the way up, you had to fight your way back down too. See, that's interesting. I didn't hate the triple cage concept at all. It's no. it, it's the kind of concept that WCW had been trying to get to for years with their like weird apocalypse doomsday yeah. cage matches with Hogan and Savage and all of that bullshit that they used to do. This is just a much better, cleaner version. It's just a hell in a cell with two more cells. So Russo swerved everybody and he handed the belt to Kevin Nash and Nash walked out with it. I do not remember like the full, like that was a swerve, but I can't remember why. Yeah, you got me. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, trying to, you have, you'd have to go back and watch all the TV. And even then, I think a lot of this probably wouldn't make any sense. I mean, it really doesn't. Like Russo is so in his head and we've kind of established this reality that Russo entered into, right? Where, like, he literally is being forced to shotgun everything every week in an attempt to beat WWE in the ratings. When, really, there's no way to do that. They're so far behind at this point, And he never really gets the opportunity to, like, start building something from the ground up. It's arguable as to whether or not he had the ability to even do that. But he just doesn't get that opportunity. So it's just constant swerve after swerve after swerve. And so you genuinely have no idea what's going on. Uh, Booker T beat Nash a few weeks later in a cage match at Fall Brawl to win the belt back. Just kind of flip-flopping the title for no reason at this point. That's a good way to make Booker look strong. <laughs> yeah. This is how he was a five-time WCW champion in like six months. Yeah. <laughs> we never really reflect on that part of the five-time thing. Yeah, it's impressive that... When he came in to WWE and I heard like, oh, five-time WCW champion, he must have been their biggest guys. And then later when I looked it up and I'm like, wait, he won the belt a year before they closed? That doesn't make sense. Yeah. But now it does. One week later on Nitro, Russo won the belt from Booker in a cage match when Goldberg speared Russo through the cage wall. That was a yeah. pretty cool thing. Unfortunately... Russo is a fucking idiot for taking bumps like that because oh, he winds up getting horrible. like 45 Goldberg, concussions. Goldberg killed him here, did not protect him at all, just speared him right into the guardrail. I mean, if you're giving Goldberg an opportunity to take out his frustrations at the booking that you're doing by harming you physically because you asked him to harm you physically, you that's something you did to yourself, buddy. 
So Russo forfeited the belt on Nitro the next week because he had a legitimate concussion. I don't know if he was ever actually going to hold the belt for any period of time. Probably not. But at that point, he just went home with the concussion and he never came back. Yep, that'll do it. Um, that night, Booker beat Jeff Jarrett in a San Francisco 49ers match to win the belt. This is where they were four po- poles hanging from each of the four corners of the ring, and each pole had a box. And you opened the box, and either the belt was in there, in which case you won, or there were things in there. Like, there was a coal miner's glove, and there was a picture of Scott Hall, and I can't think of what the third thing was. I'm just trying to imagine... Okay, so you're trying to come up with things to put in the boxes. Yeah. And I don't know if Vince Russo himself personally came up with the things to put in the boxes, but I wish that I had been put in charge of that. Because the person who did, it's just a series of weird inside jokes. Yeah. Like, the coal miner's glove match, like, okay, we know what that means, but what? how is that relevant to this? It's just a joke to be like, haha, remember this? That was dumb. And then a picture of Scott Hall. What the fuck was that even? No, I don't even know what the joke is there. I, was he still banned from being on television at that point? Was that just like a like sticking it? Man, TNT? I think they fired him by this point. Wasn't hadn't he shown up in ECW by now? I think he had, but I don't know if the, there was still like a standing thing where Kevin Nash wasn't allowed to mention his name. Yeah, they that, were doing that. They were doing that back in the summer. I remember that. So, like, if that's still the case, then maybe this was just a ha-ha, you have to mention him now. Yeah. But I, I don't know, man. Um, Russo was replaced by a committee made, made up of Terry Taylor, Ed Ferrara, Bill Banks, and Johnny Ace. That is not the most illustrious booking committee in history. Oh, a lot of people who have failed a lot of places. A lot of scummy people on that committee. Yeah. One or two. Yeah. So tonight on this show, Halloween Havoc, WSW's flagship pay-per-view, we've got Goldberg versus Chronic. We've got Booker T defending the title against Scott Steiner. And we've got Sting versus Jeff Jarrett. That's pretty exciting. (laughs) It's just a sad, sad, broken company at this point. It's one of those things where, like, the main claim to fame of this show is that this is the show where they genuinely, after the long and illustrious history of Halloween Havoc, which has had some of the biggest and brightest main events in the history of WCW. And some of the worst. And some of the worst. But nothing in between. Here we have Goldberg in a handicap match against a crappy tag team that sucks. That's the main event of this show. And it goes three minutes. (sighs) <sighs> it was the not the gl- it was not the glory days anymore. Though, as we're going to cover, even though almost every character on this miserable thing in this miserable company is ass backwards and ridiculous and completely failed, this isn't that bad a show. It really reminded me of a TNA show in kind of a good way. Yes, my wife literally walked in on me watching it and said, "Is this TNA?" And I'm like, "Basically." basically. I mean, yeah. If TNA had gotten Goldberg, they literally could have put this exact show on. Yeah. Um, so to get into the show, it's Sunday, October 29th, 2000. We're at the MGM Grand Garden Arena in Las Vegas, Nevada. Um, 
7,582 in attendance. That is not even close to full. The entire upper deck is empty. It looks pretty bad. And that was actually like when she said, hey, is this uh, TNA? I was like, well, there's slightly more fans. Yeah, there's pretty few close. more people than there would be. But yeah. I mean, there's still 7,500 people. This is a big venue. I mean, For it's, WCW at this point, this was a good crowd and a good gate. It was a $200,000 gate, which is way more than they were usually doing at this point, even on pay-per-view. I mean, there's a good re- there's a reason why people run Vegas. I mean, it's there are so many people just around yeah. looking for stuff to do that it's just it's easy to get a crowd, right? Yeah. They may Plus, not you, be get, the most- you get the casino and you get the casino buys for a bunch of the tickets, too. Yeah. So, like, while it may not be the most enthusiastic crowd ever, as you saw at WrestleMania nine, where nobody gave a shit about the actual show, you're at least going to pack the stands. Uh, do you want to guess the buy rate? Point oh, uh, point fourteen. <laughs> You, you nailed it. 0.15. Are you fucking serious? Yeah. That's fucking wild. 70,000 buys. One of the worst buy rates in WCW history to this I point. I was being really mean by saying 0.14. I thought no, I was that's actually, no, that's actually what they did. Oh, man, I thought you were going to be like, no, it's a 0.4. You know, it's fine. Nope. This one sucked. They did 230,000 buys the previous year. And that was like a weak number for the time. But I need you to understand this. It's just like, look at this show that, as we talk about it, imagine giving these people money for this show. To watch this garbage. In the same month, the WWE, I don't even know what show that they were running during this month. No Mercy 2000, Austin versus Rikishi. Oh, man. So, like, this is literally the culmination of, like, the red-hot who ran over Stone Cold Steve Austin storyline, yeah. which obviously had its own issues. Rock but versus imagine, Kurt Angle, uh, Triple H versus having, Chris Benoit. Yeah. Imagine having to choose. Like, you're a household. Your parents will let you pay $50 for one of these. It's not going to be this one. No. God, no. Holy shit. On commentary, the bizarre team of Tony Schiavone, Mark Madden, and Stevie Ray. I have to confess, I actually liked our arch rival Mark Madden on this night. He was funny. Now look, I will say that I was pleasantly surprised by him much of the night. Most of the time, when you get a commentator who does like the heel side of things and rooting for the heels and stuff. It comes across really cheesy, but Mark Madden in his real life endeavors comes across as such an absolute scumbag piece of shit that he's just really compelling in that role. And he did have some good lines here. I did not. The law cast hates Mark Madden. (laughs) I did not take any notes on the opening. It was not very notable. They were no longer doing stuff like the Tony Schiavone is a child molester mini movie. I don't know why they ever stopped having people (laughs) trick or treat at Tony Schiavone's house. Like that should have just been as the local police intervened. That's probably true. Um, we are well into Hawaiian shirt Tony at this point. This is Tony Schiavone, who does not give a rat's ass about the they, show that he's calling. I think they should have stuck with the announcers dressing up. Yeah, they just... Wearing what costumes, do you think about, I mean, for Halloween Havoc. Let me ask you a question that I'm not sure has ever been asked in all the annals of wrestling history. Who's the better commentator, Stevie Ray or Booker T? Oh... Um, 
I'd say Booker, but I I think Stevie could have been a great commentator if he'd had more time with it. I thought he was on his way to being really good. The really interesting thing about this setup is that it's actually really close to when they had Tony, Bobby Heenan, and Dusty Rhodes. Obviously, Mark Madden is no Bobby Heenan and Stevie Ray is no Dusty Rhodes, but they bring the same thing. Like Stevie Stevie Ray is just like always rooting for the baby faces, always being like, oh my God, I can't believe the heels would cheat. That's ridiculous. And then you have a super heel on the other side and then Tony in the middle. That's a good dynamic. Yeah, worked well. I didn't have any problem with the commentary here, which is funny because every other show I've ever seen from this era, the commentary is fucking trash. So I don't know why it's better tonight, but it is. A big disappointment for me, the set is just a, it's just a screen. No Halloween Havoc set. I mean, it does still look better than a lot of the shows from this era do. Yeah. But you're right. There's nothing special to make it a Halloween yeah. Havoc. You need the pumpkin. You need the graveyard. Like, you got to have it. It's Halloween Havoc. They just couldn't find any hay in Las Vegas, man. <laughs> Man, they this thing it's not like those were expensive props. Like you could literally just go out to a Halloween store and buy all that stuff for like fifty bucks. I bet you money you could just go into like the prop room at the MGM Grand and they would yeah. have all that shit. Well, you want a big inflatable pumpkin? Yeah, we did some shit with Rod Stewart a couple years ago. Here you go. Oh, opening match for the WCW tag titles. We've got the natural born thrillers defending against the filthy animals and the boogie nights. Um, so we've got Sean O'Hare and Mark Jindrak representing the natural born thrillers. I was you know, a big fan of these guys. I thought they were going to be huge. I will say like all of these power plant guys who get called up right around this time, they all get kind of a bad name largely because due to the tumultuous events in wrestling that come, none of them ever really get to develop properly. Like they get totally stunted by being pushed way too far, way too fast. Then they swap to WWE, have to learn a whole new style. And they suck there. Yeah, it just doesn't really work. Big big Nexus vibes from these guys. Oh, totally. But genuinely, Jindrak and O'Hare look like megastars. I mean, O'Hare, to have a guy who's like six, he's like the size of The Rock. Like... 6'5", 250 plus, super shredded, and he does, like, moonsaults and swanton bombs. And Mark Jindrak looks like a taller Randy Orton. Like, genuinely, these two guys could have been top guys later on. Mark Jindrak was almost in Evolution. There's, and there's a chance that that could have worked. I don't think he had, he never had the same charisma that Orton did, obviously. No, it was going to be him instead of Batista. Oh, that would have been very interesting, actually. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, like him and Orton, that was like the thing was like, it was just somebody said like when they saw like, I think it was Arn Anderson said, you know, when I see like Flair and Triple H and Orton and Jindrak walking through backstage, it's like the change of man. I mean, yeah. That is funny that he was part of the reason that it got created but didn't get to be part of it. That sucks for yeah, him. But they he actually would've... filmed like the Reservoir Dog stuff with him too. And then they just changed their mind about it and put Batista in instead, which is obviously the right call. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Jindrak would go on later in his career to be a gigantic star in Mexico as just like the pretty white boy who everyone hates. He obviously had something. I, I do wonder... If WCW doesn't fold completely, or at least when it comes back, these are the guys who they're going to build the company around because they're cheap and they're young. And where would they have eventually gotten? That's the interesting question. 
if if Jindrak arrive if Jindrak and O'Hare arrive in '97 instead of 2000, they probably become huge stars. It, it's a shame, but like, and they are green as fucking goose shit here. It's crazy how green they are. They can barely put together this match, but everything they do looks really cool. Yeah, I mean the setup here is bad, where they do three guys in the ring at a time. Like that is not a good setup for a three-way tag match. No, and like who's the ring general here? It winds up being Alex Wright, because like nobody else can like string anything together, and it's just this clusterfuck. So Alex Wright is in the match for like nine of the ten minutes. Yeah, we've got Ray and Kidman representing the Filthy Animals, and the Boogie Knights are Disco Inferno and Alex Wright, except he's like Berlin Alex Wright now, yeah. bald and wearing his black gear. He still looks like the most evil heel you can possibly imagine. Yeah. I don't even, were the Boogie Knights faces or heels here? Who the hell knows? Because Alex Wright is still absolutely wrestling like a dickhead heel, and Disco yeah. Inferno is just Disco Inferno. I know the filthy animals are baby faces, but aside from that, I'm not really sure. Yeah, I think the Boogie Knights were heels at this point because they do jump the animals after the match. Um, this was basically, you know, if this is a TNA show, this was the X Division opener. Like, just tons of high flying moves here, super fast pace. This was a really good opener. Great match. This is probably, I don't want to go so far as to say my favorite WCW match from around this era because there are other good ones here and there, yeah. but like, I really enjoyed this. Like, it's a clusterfuck. And Jindrak and O'Hare repeatedly are, like, leaning down to listen to Alex Wright to figure out what the fuck they're supposed to do next. But again, everything they do looks amazing. The fucking Sean Tom bomb that Sean O'Hare does at the end of this is amazing. Yeah, He clears, like, the whole ring. Yeah, O'Hare gets the pin with the Sean Tom bomb. Um... After the match, Wright beats up Ray and Kidman with a chair. Conan, who had been doing commentary, jumps in the ring. He gets beat up with the chair. And then the Wall brother runs down, but he's now Sergeant A. Wall because he's part of the Misfits in action. And he runs down to make the save. Steve, can I make a shameful admission to you? What's that? Just today, 21 years after this event, while I was watching this show... I finally realized that the wall is named Sergeant A. Wall because he's A. Wall. (laughs) That one went over your head before. I just thought it was random. And I was just sitting there like, wow. They really were just like, yeah, you can be A. Wall. Get it? Get it? Because you're a wall, dude. He runs out to make the save. I like Hogan came up with that one. And then he's in the next match because it's Reno defending the hardcore title against him. Uh, Reno was another guy in the natural born thrillers. He looks amazing. He never amounted to much of anything. He looks like somebody who they like, he looks, you remember in Lord of the Rings when they like created the Urukai from yeah. the mud? He looks like that. Like he was just some like hatched from some sort of villain's laboratory. Just shredded. He's like five foot six, but he's like built out like a tank. And he got this like weird, his whole head is shaved, except for like a three foot long rat tail coming out the back. It's a hell of a heelish look. They brawl around ringside. There's lots of weapon shots. Reno hits a couple low blows and uh, his finisher, the roll of the roll of the dice, which is the crossroads out on the ramp. Um, 
Reno stacks up tables, but he gets slammed through them. They fight backstage. Wall hits Reno with a computer monitor. And Mark well, it's Madden's not a real like, computer monitor. It's like a fake plastic computer monitor. Because yeah. at one point, he like throws it on the ground and it bounces. <laughs> Mark Madden says something about how he had always said that computers were going to kill wrestling, which I chuckled at. That was a pretty good line. <laughs> Uh, they fight through Gorilla, and the wall randomly punches Fit Finley, who's sitting there being an agent. That was my favorite part of this entire show. <laughs> They're just wandering by, and Fit Finley is sitting in a chair, and the wall just punches him in his face. Okay. Not, don't pick a fight with Fit Finley. I, I really would have loved... I, I was sad after that that Fit Finley didn't just come down and whoop both of their asses. Um, this... This was kind of fun at first, but this dragged. Like, they had five minutes of stuff here, and they stretched it to ten. Yeah. Here's the truth. Reno is just as green as Jindrak and O'Hare are. Yeah. They pulled Um, all these guys out of the power plant. He also does not have the talent that they do. And the wall is just ass. Like, he's... (laughs) So bad. It's amazing that, like, Hogan, just like Abyss... (laughs) Latches onto this dude who has this terrible physique. He's just vaguely big. <laughs> he's just big. But he's not impressively big. He's like 6'2 and fat. But like he just, he's vaguely bigger than the other guys. So he gets this huge push. But he sucks. And in his Misfits in Action gear, which all the Misfits in Action just wear like camo pants and t-shirts. He just looks like shit. All of Brother, the Misfits in Action look like assholes. I think me and the big German might be able to draw a little bit of money together. Jesus Christ, man. Also, by the way, this is the first match that we really get to see what the theme of this particular show is, which is the Misfits in Action versus the Natural Born Thrillers. Oh, God. Which is the whole first eight matches of the show feature either the Natural Born Thrillers or the Misfits in Action. All of those matches do. It's fucking crazy. Just also count how many matches go backstage or into the crowd tonight. Yes. And again, the crowd is not full. Please stop exposing that. No. This is where I have to call back to our Blackjack Brawl episode that no one listened to, but we have so much affection for. This was a better crowd than the Blackjack Brawl, but there's similar vibes where they keep using angles where we can see that the upper half of the arena is empty. There's one point while I don't remember which match it was, but they're brawling into the crowd and they look like the camera pans up into a section where there's no one except one guy. And he's just (laughs) going like, "Woo!" that's pretty sweet. Like he's got his own section. Dude, if I could get that at a wrestling event, I would lose my shit. I'd be up there with signs jumping up and down. It'd be great. Reno hits the roll roll of the dice onto a table and gets the win to retain the hardcore title. Palumbo and Sean Stasiak show up to beat up the wall after the match, and MIA makes the save. This one's really weird, too, okay? So Stasiak and Palumbo are out there, and then Miss Loco and Cajun run out to make the save. But then they all go backstage, and then they have a match against each other next, and then they come out to their entrances again. Yes. You were already out there! Yeah, that would have kept the show moving if they had just done this match next. Yeah, what the fuck? Uh, backstage, we see Chronic demanding that Goldberg sign a waiver before he wrestles tonight. They're trying to do this story throughout the yeah. course of the night, where at first it's, will Goldberg be able to wrestle his match? And about halfway through the show, they're just like, oh, yeah, he is. Oh, okay. 
And then it's, will Goldberg be healthy enough by the end? Which is why Booker T is not in the main event of the show. He literally says, no, it's okay. I'll accept the match before the main event and not get the main event payday to buy some time for you, Goldberg, because I respect you so much. What the fuck are any of you talking about? Then we've got Sean Stasiak and Chuck Palumbo against Lieutenant Loco and Corporal Cajun of the Misfits in Action. That's Chavo Guerrero and Lash LaRue. So the Misfits in Action at this point are comprised of Sergeant AWOL, who is the wall. Yeah. Lieutenant Loco, who's Chavo Guerrero. Corporal yep. Cajun, who is Lash LaRue. And General Erection, who is Hugh Morris. Is that the worst stable of all time it's not a great group of guys i did like mia i thought this was a fun stable i kind of understand why they put booker t in it to be honest because like if they had a better leader that's fine that's a fine stable right it's it's fine they have some of the worst theme music in the history of professional wrestling that that, that's a dub i think they they may have actually been coming out to uh the song war or at least a knockoff of it okay that's better like if they there was a a lot of dubbed music on this show that is true and it's all very bad very bad having hugh morris be the leader of your babyface stable just it's it's that's a bad idea and if they hadn't done the stupid fake names, I would like it better. I think I would remember it better. And if they didn't just come out to wrestle in T-shirts. <laughs> but even so, I don't hate this stable. And I don't hate the natural-born thrillers. But they just all take up so much of this show. This match was ten minutes long, but it felt like an hour. The I only thing I liked was that Palumbo was wearing orange Halloween gear. I agree. I think, is this the match that they do, like, the Tower of Death spot that TNA did a million times later? Like, I can't remember if it was the first match or this one, but they literally do the Tower of Death. I'm pretty sure that was the first match. I don't think anything that cool happened in this match. But they do the Tower of Death spot, which I think, this is the earliest I had ever seen anyone do that spot. I don't think they invented it here, but I thought it was invented in Ring of Honor and TNA, but this is much before those, so. Yeah, definitely predates that. Um, Yeah. MIA get the win after Chavo hits the tornado DDT on Stasiak. And does that conclude our MIA versus Natural Born Thrillers matches? Uh, no. Oh, yeah. That, yeah. that can The feud between it's, each other, yes. There's a lot more MIA left on this show, believe it or not. And a lot more Natural more. Born Thrillers, too. Yeah. Yeah, there is. <laughs> um, next, we go backstage... The trainer tells Conan he shouldn't wrestle, but he goes to the ring for his match anyway. It's Shane Douglas and Tori Wilson versus Conan and Tigress. Uh, Tori is dressed as Wonder Woman, looking real fine. It is. I wonder what political machinations that Shane Douglas did in order to get Tori Wilson as his manager. Because holy shit. (laughs) I don't know that there is any bigger disparity between a wrestler and their manager looks-wise in wrestling history. It's up there. It's it's fucking up there. And then Tigress comes out by herself to (laughs) wrestle both of them. I really have no idea who Tigress is. I mean, I know that she was the valet for the filthy animals, but aside from that, she was just a nitro girl. I don't really think that she did much else. I don't think she had very much wrestling training based on how she looked here. 
Definitely not. Though I will point out that she does okay, considering how she probably literally has no wrestling training, to be honest. And like, and the other thing about this is, is that this is an intergender match. If you want, again, we go back to people being like, well, you can't do intergender wrestling in America. They done did the shit. Yes. It's just like, they used to do this all the time. And then they stopped later on in this match. Tori Wilson gives the franchiser to Conan and he sells it. Yeah. He sells for Tori. Tigress gets to kick Shane in the junk, but then she gets worked over. Conan shows up. He gets beaten up by Douglas. Um, Tigress works on Shane's arm until he just punches her straight in the face. That is interesting. <laughs> this is what you want, right? I mean, if he's going to be a Treat dickhead, the men and women as equals? Yeah, I guess. See, the problem I don't, th- I don't, think, I don't think Tigress should be wrestling at all. That's the thing. Is that, like, I'm not arguing that people's valets should be wrestling Shane Douglas and being equals and that they should be getting horribly abused because that's what an equal is. What I'm arguing is that somebody who's an actual competent wrestler should be the yeah. equal of Shane Douglas. Like Charlotte versus Seth Rollins. Yeah, Charlotte should job out Seth Rollins. Seth Rollins yeah. is nothing compared to Charlotte. No, unless someday Seth Rollins is more over than his wife, which we know is never going to happen. I mean, there's genuinely no world in which I don't believe that Bianca could beat Roman Reigns, except that they would just never do it. Uh, Tigress manages to tag in Conan, who comes in hot, but then Tori Wilson hits him with the franchiser, which is my favorite moment of the match. I can't. Okay. First of all, not only does she hit him with it, like she grabs him in like a bear hug for a second. I'm like, what are we doing here? And then she hits him with the franchiser and he sells it like he's been shot with a cannon. I feel like Conan is kind of a notorious misogynist. That's what I had always believed. He has a podcast with Disco Inferno. Like, like you got to imagine. Just stank energy there. But... I don't know that anyone has ever sold for a non-wrestling woman as much as he does no. here for Tori. It's crazy. So, I mean, progress. Dig ups to Conan. Thanks, K-Dog. Uh, Tigress breaks the pin up. How great would it have been if Tori had actually pinned him? Oh, he, she should have pinned him one, two, three. Mega push for Tori Wilson. Conan then hits a gut buster on Douglas and gets the pin. Uh, this was a very bad match. Oh, it was horrific. Every <laughs> minute of it. And Appalling. Was We've got something even worse next. It's David <laughs> Flair versus Buff Bagwell in a DNA match. Kyush, what are the rules of the DNA match? Okay, so there are two lab technicians. They're yeah. supposed to be at ringside, but they actually stay backstage. And they have with them blood collecting equipment and so the rules are that david flair is has to bust open buff bagwell and then up, somehow obtain a sample of his blood and get it back to the lab technicians so that he can test to determine if buff bagwell is the father of stacy keebler's baby okay that Meanwhile, makes sense to me here's buff the thing ba- yeah. if you if what you have to do is collect a dna sample could he jerk him off definitely yes yeah, why wouldn't that work? Steve, if this match... <laughs> the world's very first beat-off match, whoever comes first loses. Oh. 
I just, or, you know, they could have gotten some of his hair. <laughs> I, may, I, I may or may not have seen some videos of that genre on the internet <laughs> in my time. I mean, if you pay $1,000, I guarantee you can have a beat-off match with Buff Bagwell literally right now. Indeed, you can. But, okay, whereas Buff Bagwell is just here to, he just has to make David Flair bleed, and that's the end of the match. Now, the saga of Stacey Keebler's pregnancy. Okay, so yeah. Flair and Stacy Keebler were dating. She's pregnant. They were going to get married on Nitro, but then she left him at the altar when she confessed that the baby wasn't his. Which they would repeat this exact storyline in the WWE 20 years later with, uh, what, Rusev and Lana and Bobby yes. Lashley? And- yes, Bobby Lashley's the one who impregnated Lana. or so- But no, no, it turned out that uh, Liv Morgan was the one who had the affair with Lana. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So, okay, some, some things about this whole thing. First of all, this... The whole investigation by David Flair turns up that basically everybody had been fucking Stacey Keebler. So, like, Buff Bagwell confirms that, yes, I definitely did have sex oh, with Stacey. Oh, show. But I'm not the dad. No. And, okay. I don't think we ever found out who the father was. They yes. dropped the storyline. Well, hold on. Because Isn't it going to be Ric Flair? Yes, the hot rumor was that it was going to be that Rick was the father. This is more evidence that it was actually Vince Russo who was obsessed with incest and not Vince yeah. McMahon. And then it was going to turn out that Rick, the Stacy was Rick's daughter yes. and that he didn't know. And that David and Stacy were brother and sister. Yeah, sure. That like St- Stacy's mom was like a waitress in Baltimore back in the day. And like, yes. yeah, she met Rick Flair because they would run. Ball- well, yeah, this is where that was going, if I remember right. So Stacy has some sort of incest baby. Anyway, the point is, is that they give her a miscarriage during a mud wrestling match. Yeah, somehow that's like the classy way out of this is a fucking miscarriage angle. Which Yeah, like, we should have her mud wrestle major guns and then halfway through hold her stomach and go, uh-oh, and then she has a miscarriage. I that's how that feel works. like a miscarriage is one of those places you shouldn't go in wrestling. You fucking think? Yes? My God. I just think there's certain things that feel like they're too upsetting to, like, make their way into wrestling, and miscarriages feel like one of them. I remember talking with someone ages ago, and we agreed that the only way it could have been worse is if she had gone down to the abortion clinic, and then, like, it had turned out that a wrestler, like, somebody that David Flair was, Buff Bagwell was the doctor, and he turns the mask, (laughs) takes the mask off, and, like, beats the shit out of David Flair. Oh, my God. God. Yes, I gotta go see my gynecologist, and it turns out to be Dr. Booty Daddy. Abortion on a pole feels like something Vince Russo would have done. Ooh. I don't even want to give him the idea. Oh, my God. Um, so the, they, have, they have a five-minute match. Bagwell hits Flair with a chair, and Flair blades. Bagwell then follows up with the blockbuster, and the ref stops the match. Um, Lex Luger shows up and he celebrates with Bagwell and then clotheslines him. I think this was the first time we'd seen Lex Luger in months. Yeah. And I believe it was Mark Madden with the line, Lex Luger turns on literally yes. everybody. <laughs> that was very meta. Which, of course, is true, with one obvious exception, not Sting. <laughs> Luger hits Bagwell with the chair that busts him open so Flair does, in fact, get his blood sample. He literally scrapes it off of Bagwell's forehead, 
runs, like literally sprints to the backstage area, hands it to two guys in lab coats. And then as they're walking away with like blood splattered all over a test tube, Goldberg walks in and looks at him like, what the fuck is that? <laughs> that was hilarious. That was actually a pretty great transition. Is that then the announcer's like, oh shit, it's Goldberg. <laughs> oh, real wrestling is here. Imagine walking into work at your job and you're just like, who's this half naked man holding a bloody vial? That's weird. Oh, well. (laughs) Uh, Then there's an interview with Scott Steiner and he just yells nonsensically, which is what I'm always up for. He his entire promo halfway through. He stops, goes back to the start and then starts again. Oh, man. Next up, we've got a kickboxing match between Mike Sanders and Ernest Miller. Now, what are the rules of a kickboxing match, Steve? Uh, I don't know. (laughs) There's, like, rounds, I guess? Yeah, there's three one-minute rounds. You can kick and punch each other, and... But are there, like, judges? Or, like, how do you determine who wins? I didn't think anybody thought this was going to go to the judges, because they thought Ernest Miller was going to KO him. I mean... I just... Here, okay, so we're deep into this era. WCW had always done this thing where they didn't smarten up the announcers. And at the best of times, that was fantastic. Because when they do big swerves or big surprises, Shivani would be just as surprised as anybody. And he would be sort of like the voice of the fans. That was great. But every once in a while, they'd throw out a match like this. And you could obviously tell that Shivani was like, no one told me how this match is supposed to work. I have no idea how to describe it. So I'm just not going to talk. Here's eight minutes of silence. Yeah, it feels like he went on strike here. Um, it's just like, how do you not at least tell them like how the round structure works so that they can explain it to us? There's just no explanation at all. If Sanders wins, he gets to replace the cat as the commissioner. I swore he was the commissioner already. He had to have been. He made matches on the Nitro before this. Yeah, I don't know. Um Cat dominates the first round. Sanders is knocked down twice, and he can barely answer the count. Uh, they start the next round. Cat does a shuffle. He does the splits. He hits a huge uppercut. I loved this because it was straight out of punch out. Yeah, I did love that. Um, Sanders is saved by the bell. Shane Douglas shows up. I do not know what his beef with Ernest Miller was. Um, the cat does a cartwheel kick, which is pretty awesome. At first, when he started doing it, I was like, man, this is going to be some goofy shit. But then when he, like, literally solidly connected with Sanders' face, I'm like, oh, that's something a real fighter might do. Oh, shit. The cat could throw some real kicks. Yes, this is not some Eric Bischoff shit where Eric had no idea how to, like, work a kick at all. Like, the the, the cat would, like, throw kicks that look like they'd genuinely kill you, but they were at least worked enough that he didn't. Uh, The ref gets distracted, and Douglas hits the cat with a loaded fist. Cat manages to get to his feet. He knocks Sanders down and then goes outside to go after Douglas. Cat gets counted out as Sanders stands up and beats the count. That wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. Like, Cat was actually pretty entertaining here. This is sort of like, I guess, the ideal circumstances for Cat. He cuts a little promo beforehand. It showcases his martial arts stuff. Like, as I good as you cat. can really do. I thought he was one of the like bright spots of this year of WCW. Guy had a ton of charisma, and he was fun to watch in the ring with the kicks. 
The cat could be wildly hit or miss. Wildly hit or miss. Oh, man. His run in WWE, just legendarily bad. Yes, that's very funny. But yeah, we've seen him wrestle all sorts of matches at this point while we've been covering these shows. From, like, the Great Muda to Disco Inferno yeah. or whatever. He's usually pretty entertaining. Sometimes he delivers, delivers absolute bullshit. But here, not bad. Somebody call my mama because I'm about to whoop somebody is one of the greatest catchphrases in wrestling history. So good that they robbed it for Brodus Clay. Yeah, they just took his music. My favorite moment in the history of Ernest the Cat Miller, just while we're eulogizing him here, is when he was feuding with the maestro. And he actually, was he the one who actually brought out... uh, James Brown? James, James Brown, yeah. Yes, I mean, James Brown did randomly show up on a WCW pay-per-view. Yeah. Yes, and... The, I don't know the how GIF, they pulled that off. The GIF I literally used for, like, my online business card when I was doing Cush Reviews was just the maestro's reaction to that, which is him looking like he had been elect- electrocuted by the very presence of James Brown. I've never really heard the backstory on how they got James Brown, but that is pretty impressive. They probably lied about what it was. <laughs> Yeah, we're just going to go to uh, Universal Studios and do a quick thing for the fans. Is that cool, James? I feel like he was pretty hard up for money at that point. That's sad and probably true. Yeah, he was not doing well. Uh, Backstage, Goldberg is evaluated by a doctor. Then Gene Okerlund interviews Chronic, who says Goldberg's not going to be able to wrestle. But if he does, they're going to end his career. Next up, we've got Mike Awesome versus Vampiro. These should be two of the rising stars of WCW. But Mike Awesome is that 70s guy coming out in a leisure suit on the Partridge family bus. What the hell were they doing? I don't know. And I'll say this, like, I don't think that 70s guy is a gimmick that anybody could have made work. But, like, I at least kind of get why they wanted to make that a character on on the TV show. Maybe if you had like switched Disco Inferno at this point to that character, maybe yeah. it would have given him a little bit more life. Good I character for Disco Inferno. That 70s show was really popular at this time. It just, that seems like it makes sense. But to give this character to Mike Awesome, whose entire existence in wrestling is that he destroys people with the most imp- impressive move set in all of wrestling which is basically just 800 power bombs. How does that jive with that 70s guy? Yeah, they're taking a guy who should be one of their top new stars. And I don't remember if this is before or after he was the fat chick thriller Mike Awesome. I believe that comes after. Like, did he piss somebody off backstage? Were they just trying to embarrass him? I don't know. Honestly, this is the kind of guy who, like, if you're Hogan backstage, you're like, oh, push that guy, brother. I can make money with that guy. How do you have a guy with his size and his athleticism and wrestling ability and not see him as a star? Like, literally, you just should have pushed him to the top right away. This is the kind of guy you can push as a competitor for Goldberg. Yeah. This is a guy who can beat Goldberg. His original gimmick was the career career killer, Mike Awesome, which is a great gimmick. Holy shit, it is. Yeah. Like, he should have just, like, I don't know if he 
necessarily want to go down the road of having him start a winning streak like Goldberg's or something like yeah. that, but just have him take a couple of jobbers and like power bomb them through tables on the outside and then they get stretchered off. Like it doesn't take long to make that work. Yeah. Um, awesome is scheduled to get a shot at the WCW title tomorrow night on Nitro. Vampiro challenges Awesome to put his title on the shot on the line tonight, and Awesome agrees. So we've got some stakes for this match. They proceed to have a pretty good match. They fight into the crowd. Um, a fan goes after Awesome, and security has to beat him up. Yeah. Mike Austin weird. would be very low on my list of wrestlers on this card to pick a fight with. Honestly, almost every wrestler on this card, you could probably, as a fan, pick a fight with and win. Aside from, like, Ernest Miller, Goldberg, and Mike Awesome, I don't really know who you couldn't beat in a fight. I know I can whoop Jeff Jarrett. Absolutely. You and I could take on Chronic. We know it. <laughs> Back in the ring, Vampiro hits an avalanche belly-to-belly suplex. I was a big Vampiro fan at this time. He was, again, one of the things I liked about this later stage of WCW. I mean, it's understandable. Like, Vampiro is a very unique act, especially at this time. To combine, like, this sort of, like, Sting-style theatrics with being a luchador, it's sort of like the best of both worlds. He was, like, the guy who could bridge the gap from that, like, cruiserweight division that everyone loves so much and the main event. He was, like, the guy who could do both. You could absolutely see how he would be, like, a mega, mega star. Unfortunately, Vampiro is a real-life dickhead. <laughs> I don't know if that may had an, an impact on whether or not he ever made it to the top, but unfortunately that is the case. I mean, don't him and Conan have, like, a blood feud? Yes, but that's partially because of, like... <laughs> the nebulous politics around triple a and that whole th- the mexican wrestling scene of the last 20 years is a deep dive we cannot take well did that happen after this i'm sure things that happen here certainly contribute to that awesome turns the tide he hits a power bomb he gets a table vampiro cuts him off and hits a mishinoku driver awesome hits a power bomb out on the floor Awesome then finishes the match with an insane powerbomb from the top rope. Uh, I think this legitimately hurt Vampiro. Looked like his head snapped off the mat. There's literally no way to take that bump safely. There's just not, like, you can't prepare yourself. You just got to hope you get clear. And I don't think that Awesome ever really hurt anybody with that. But it's definitely a move he should be doing on guys smaller than Vampiro. (laughs) But, like, how much money would you have paid to watch Mike Awesome wrestle Rey Mysterio? A lot. That would just, be like, awesome. throw him through the Pardon earth the to China. Uh, there's an interview with Hugh Morris at MIA. He's fighting for the U.S. title and to win back major guns from Lance Storm tonight. Um, they go back to the ring where Vampiro is being helped to the back by referees. He gets a nice ovation from the crowd. I think he was probably legitimately shaken up. This was a rough power bomb he took. Absolutely, yes. Next up for the U.S. title, we've got Lance Storm and Jim Duggan against General Hugh G. Rection. <sighs> Lance, Lance Storm, what are you doing in this? Another of those bright spots from later WCW. It's weird that he didn't get a bigger run at the top, honestly. 
Like, I don't know that he would have been particularly credible against, like, the Goldbergs of the world, but he could have been, like, the next level down fighting. His feud with Booker T was actually phenomenal. Great match. That might have been the match of the year in WCW in 2000. It was probably the last great match in WCW history, to be perfectly honest. I mean, it is what it is. But you could have gone so much further with that. Landstorm versus Sting had some legs to it. He was just fresh and different. And that's really what you needed. It's just people who stood out. I mean, they pushed him. They simultaneously gave him the U.S. title, the Cruiserweight title, and the Hardcore title. They definitely should have put the tag belts and the world title on him, right? (laughs) Do the full Kurt Angle. Give him the fucking J-Crown. Let's let's fucking do it. I mean, Um, why not? I mean, just... And if you're talking about building heat on a guy... (laughs) And Jim he won all Duggan. the titles and then put Canadian flags on them and gave them Canadian names. Jim Duggan has joined up with Team Canada, so he's with Storm here. That is a pretty bizarre idea. I don't really know why Jim Duggan was even on team. Like, to have Jim Duggan not as an All-American Patriot at this point is pretty bizarre because that was really all he was good for by now. Somebody must have been like, hey— this will be a really great idea. We'll have Jim Duggan turn turncoat, and people will be so offended that it'll give Landstorm so much heat. But the truth is, is that nobody gives a shit about Jim Duggan in the year 2000. Other it doesn't than matter what USA. It does not matter what Jim Duggan does. If Jim Duggan turns his back on America, okay. <laughs> and the big problem here is that Jim Duggan probably wrestles eight of the ten minutes that this match lasts. And any second that Jim Duggan is doing anything in a wrestling ring is a wasted moment of your of your life. A lot of heat for Storm. He sure. starts with his great catchphrase, if I can be serious for a minute. That's one of the great catchphrases. Way underrated. It is just like it sums the character up. It just makes you be like, fuck this guy. Fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> Um, he plays out Canada, but Morris's entrance interrupts it. Uh, Morris dominates early, but eventually the numbers disadvantage gets to be too much for him, and the Canadians take over. Morris makes a comeback. Storm goes for the single leg crab, but Morris is able to block it. The ref gets bumped. Duggan hits a pile driver. Elix Skipper tries to interfere. Was he actually Canadian, or did he just play in the CFL? I believe he just played in the CFL. Yeah. Um, Major Guns hits him with the Canadian flag to cut him off. Duggan gets the two by four. Morris ducks it. He hits a Cobra cut clutch leg sweep and then hits the moonsault for the pin. He actually gets a great pop for winning. I don't want to put, I don't want to bury this whole thing. Hugh Morris actually cuts a pretty decent promo right before this. It had been like something that they build to. Somebody was going to get a huge pop for finally being the guy who takes the U.S. title off of Landstorm, right? I mean, he had lost the other titles already, but those were minor things. This was the main belt that he had taken and put a Canadian flag on. And it was literally the U.S. title, and he turned it to the Canada title. Somebody's going to get a big pop for beating him. Should it have been Hugh Morris? No, but... It works because anybody it w- would have worked with, really. Vampiro could have fucking done it and held up an American flag afterwards. That would have been weird since he's Mexican-Canadian, but he still could have done it. <laughs> um, 
There's an interview with Jeff Jarrett who says he has a surprise for Sting tonight. And then we've got Sting versus Jeff Jarrett. Like we said, it's a TNA show. God, the number of times I've watched these two wrestle. And I literally was watching this the first time and I fell asleep about 30 seconds in during Jeff Jarrett's entrance because I was like, I my brain cannot at this point process Sting and Jeff Jarrett in a wrestling ring together. But I'm glad I rewatched because this match is not your normal Jeff Jarrett Sting match. Yeah, I don't really remember how this feud started, but like Jarrett has been mocking Sting, saying he doesn't like have the fire and the passion that the old Sting had, that he's washed up. He dressed up as Blonde Surfer Sting for a promo at one point, one point which is great because he actually looked a lot like him. He looked a lot like him. Short, but a lot like him. I kind of wish he had just wrestled this match as Surfer Sting. I absolutely wish that he had. I wish that all of the different stings had just been Jarrett some, somehow. <laughs> he just, he'd like, just, like, do a quick change backstage, yeah. Yeah, he, like, goes under the ring, comes out the other end. Now I'm b- black and red sting. Ooh. Uh, sting starts the match out kicking Jarrett's ass. I should note, both of them have horrible music dubs here. Um, Jarrett was coming off out to a Jimmy Hart version of Cowboy by Kid Rock. Sting was coming out to the actual Seek and Destroy by Metallica. Which seems incredible, because based on what we know about Metallica and how protective they were, like, this was literally happening during the Napster thing. How the fuck much money were they paying for this? I don't know how they pulled that off. I I don't think Time Warner... They weren't the record company for Metallica. They can't be. No, there's no way. Maybe they had the rights to the song from a movie or something. Unless they bought it, but maybe. But see, then I wonder, if WWE bought all of their shit, does Time Warner own it or does WCW own it? Uh, I'm very the music. Confused. It doesn't seem like the music transferred because they dub over tons of WCW music. Right, that's what I'm saying. They just would have used Seek and Destroy liberally. But, like, that's a very interesting question. Yeah. Um, Sting is beating up Jarrett, and then a fake blonde Sting comes out. Sting beats him up. This was Robbie Rage from High Voltage, who was pretty much a dead ringer for Sting circa, like, 1988. I will give them this. He looked egg-fucking-zackly like Sting. Yeah. And I was genuinely stunned. Like, I was Same genuinely... That, yeah. that was a really great ringer. And I point that out because... The next four? They get progressively like, worse is the funny thing. The fifth one is looks so far away from Sting, you wouldn't have even believed that that's who he was trying to be if it weren't for the other four. That was Sting from the future. We'll get to that. Yeah. Jarrett and Sting fight through the crowd, and then 1991 Sting shows up in his ridiculous ring jacket. Um. They fight back to the ring. Sting throws him over the rope and then hits him with a scorpion death drop on the ramp. Uh, this was Steve Armstrong, um, the road dog's brother. Okay, I just looked this up, by the way. Sting's version was a live recording from Woodstock 99, which is why they had the rights to it. It's not the original. How does that work? I don't know. Unless Time Warner had the rights to the footage from Woodstock. Maybe. Even then, it feels like they'd have to pay royalties. But, at any rate, there you go. 
Um, Wolfpack Sting shows up. I love how the announcers just like they don't bury the guy, they bury like Wolfpack Sting. Yeah, they're like, literally like, just like, man, Sting looks like a scumbag back then. Yeah, wasn't he a bad guy? What a fucking asshole. Wolfpack <laughs> Sting is literally like four foot six. It is crazy how much he does not look like Sting. Man, I, he he did not have the trashy goatee that Wolfpack Sting was sporting, but yeah, this was Sting at like his scummiest. Okay, now which who is this? Uh, this know? is Chris. I thought this was Chris Harris. I thought this one was too short to be. I thought the next yeah, one was Chris Harris. Yeah, it's probably the next one. Maybe the next one is Chris Harris. Yeah, this one was somebody. Who fucking cares? And he's like living it up. He's like too sweet in the audience, and he's he's trying to get like every drop out of this. And then Sting just walks up and like rocks up his shit. I loved this match. This was such a fun idea. Like there are so many ways that this could have been better presented. Probably bringing out somebody from Sting's past who would have really troubled Sting, or yeah. presenting this in such a way. I don't know. I loved this. I loved that. Sting was not at all really all that distracted by this mind what, game attempt. Did you say a mysterious figure from Sting's past? Yes. Sting, are you ready for this? Oh, I would have loved that. <laughs> Mark Madden does at one point shout out the Black Scorpion. Imagine if, like, the spaceship descends oh from the rafters God. and the Black Scorpion emerges. <laughs> Have you heard the story about Ric Flair in the hotel room that night? No, I doing not. the black doing the black scorpion voice with the mask on and opening up his robe to reveal <laughs> he's naked. To be like, Sting, are you ready for this? <laughs> Jesus Christ, Claire. <laughs> Just call Tony Schiavone into his room. Be like, hey, I got something to show you. <laughs> Oh, boy, did he. Oh, my God. God damn it, Rick. <sighs> ah. So, um, he annihilates him. He beats up Wolfpack Sting with his baseball bat and then hits him with a scorpion death drop. That's my favorite part. Each one of these fake Stings, Sting just drags him up to the ramp, death drops him on the ramp, and then just walks back to the ring casually like, fuck that guy. In kayfabe, how much did Jared have to pay these jabronis to do this? That's a great question. I mean, <laughs> in kayfabe, these are all just like young boys in the back. I'm sure he was just like, hey, slap on this makeup, slap yeah, nut, and like, get out there. How much did he spend on like the costumes and the makeup and the props and everything? You imagine him like studiously studying the makeup yeah. routine and the mirror. Like, he just spends like weeks and weeks on this. Yeah, he's just like, he gets all the tapes from Turner and he's watching them at home and like taking notes and drawing sketches. He's getting like the makeup ladies from 1991. Yeah, he found Terry. He brought her in. Ooh, I like that. All for Sting to like obliterate these guys and then be like, all right, can we go back to the match now? Yeah. <laughs> Jared hits Sting with the bat. Um, St Jared is whooping on Sting in the ring. Sting makes a comeback. This is where Madden says we need the Black Scorpion. Yep. Jared misses a drop kick. Sting goes to put him in the Scorpion Deathlock. 
crow Sting bursts up through the mat and drags Sting down to hell with him. That was a genuinely cool moment. I like that a lot. Crosting bursts up through the mat like they forgot to cut a big enough opening for him and his head's just sticking up through the canvas for a minute. And then he just drags Sting headfirst into the hole. They come back up and Sting throws the imposter out of the ring. I don't know if this was either Chris Harris or it was Dan Devine from New Japan. Now, if it's Chris Harris... That's really fascinating because he'll go on to become obviously the biggest star of any of the people doing this fake sting thing, but also because it gives us yet another opportunity to bring up Braden Walker and his yeah. world famous catchphrase. Steve, what's that catchphrase? Knock, knock. Who's there? Braden Walker. And I'm going to beat your brains in. God, I love that catchphrase. <laughs> Sting goes for the Scorpion Death Drop on Jarrett, and the lights go out. Another Sting descends from the steel, and this is like the ghost of Christmas future. This is Dad Sting. Like, he's old as shit and bald in. See, that's my favorite part, is that... (laughs) Jarrett ran out of good Stings at this point. Like, it's hard to find six guys who look like Sting. You just imagine he's going through the backstage area, and he's like, all right, I got Robbie, I got Chris Harris... Who Please. else we got? Uh, the janitor? Sure. Okay. okay. Ralphus? You have to say, just Ralphus descends from the ceiling. Here's the crazy thing. How do they do a fake sting gimmick and they don't have Jeff Farmer? I think Jeff Farmer's in New Japan at this point. Yeah. I, I don't think they've thought about Jeff Farmer in so many years. Well, is he pretending to be Sting in New Japan? He never didn't pretend to be Sting. Yeah, he was just fake Sting the whole time he was in New Japan. Let me see if he's still even with the company at this point. He, yes, he's still in New Japan at this point. Sting, yeah, the guy's wig comes off and he's bald. I don't know who this was. People thought it was Bill Eady at the time, but apparently it's not. I don't think he, he wasn't big enough to be Bill Eady. I wish they had, instead of getting a bunch of young boys, if they had just gotten, like, <laughs> Scott Hall to put on the wig or, like, Kevin Nash. I, those guys both played fake Sting at one point. I know. That's the best part. Get Flair. Fuck it. Get everybody. <laughs> and you, we can just have fun at home being like, wait, is that Rick fucking Flair? <laughs> Sting hits the fake Sting with a scorpion death drop through the announce table. He murders him with this. <laughs> the announce table explodes. The best thing about the scorpion death drop, too, is every time Sting does the scorpion death drop, he himself is also taking a bump. He's taking the bump, yeah. He takes so many bumps in this match that have nothing to do with the match. Didn't he once do it in TNA and hit his head on a chair? Yes, he's trying to do it, put the other guy through the chair, but he misplaced it and he put himself <laughs> through the chair. Jesus. Um, so many Sting. good Sting, Sting and TNA stories. <laughs> when Sting played fake Sting? Yes, when Sting was sitting in the front row with a Sting mask on, and then he pulled it off, and he was just Sting underneath. Oh, Sting puts Jarrett in the Scorpion Deathlock. One of the bogus Stings come back and hits Sting with a guitar. Sting just pops right back up from this, which I always pop for. Absolutely. 
he hits him with the scorpion death drop. Jarrett comes in with another guitar, hits Sting with it, and gets the pin. I enjoyed this match. This was fun. This goes on for 14 minutes, and it's probably the only thing on this whole show that doesn't drag. On paper, this is so fucking stupid. And in a way, it is. But God, it was more entertaining than any normal match these two ever could have possibly had. Yeah, I mean, I feel like this works on two levels. Like, you do have the metaphorical level of, like, it's Sting fighting against his past, trying to prove he still has it, you know, that he's as good as he used to be. But on the other hand, you used to have the comedy of, like, holy shit, Jared actually paid five jabronis to dress up in super elaborate Sting costumes. And, like... And get their asses beat. Yeah, during the course of it, Sting gets to look strong because he obliterates these jabronis. And then finally they just manage to distract him for just a second so he can get clobbered with the chair. Sting doesn't look bad. Jarek gets the win. It's good. It's good. It works. They would go on to have a very similar feud in TNA that did not involve all the fake Stings, unfortunately. It's the same fucking feud. And it sucks so much worse. <laughs> That Bound for Glory 06, you can hear that one in the archives. I reposted that recently. It is. <laughs> it is like my my personal white whale is all the times I have watched these two men wrestle each other. Uh, there's an interview with Booker T who says something about like there's a difference between deserving the world title and talking about it. Booker says he's going to go wrestle now rather than last to give Goldberg more time to prepare for his match. Um, so it's uh, for the WCW title. We've got Booker T against Scott Steiner. Michael Buffer is out to do the introductions. Um, Steiner is coming off the biggest singles win of his career the previous month when he beat Goldberg. He's one of the few people to ever beat Goldberg clean. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I got to say, too, like... Steiner is not only just coming off, has a ton of momentum, but like this is probably the best he ever looked. This is probably the best his promos ever were. This is probably the hottest he ever was. He gets a big reaction when he comes out. He's a star. He's like a super jacked version of Brian Pillman at this point. Like you just believe he's capable of anything. He's probably the only person on this roster who has anything going. Uh, he attacks one of the agents at the gorilla position on his way to the ring. Um, second time that's happened tonight. Poor gorilla position. Um, a few minutes into the match, Steiner hops the railing to get in the face of a fan who's heckling him. Again, he's just capable of anything, it feels like. Yeah. Like, your butthole has to clinch in gorilla every single time he interacts with anyone who is not a wrestler. Because, like, it just feels like there's that chance, right? Like, the malice at the palace, but in wrestling. Yeah, I was going to say, this is a Ron Artest situation just waiting to happen. Yeah, if somebody threw a full bottle of water at Scott Steiner out of the stands, Scott Steiner is taking that guy to school, and, like, we're going to prison after that. Because I don't think WCW is going to protect him like the Indiana Pacers did. I do want to mention, too, before we go too much further, hearing Booker T get that Michael Buffer entrance as the champion. Yeah. Like, it was so... I don't think I had ever heard that before. Maybe it had happened at one of the other shows we covered. But it was just so rewarding. After all the time that we spent wanting Booker T to get there, to hear him be like, His, he is beloved worldwide and is known as the true people's champion. It's like, 
fuck yes, Booker T finally gets that. Even if yeah. we're in the middle of this wasteland of what the product is, at least he got that one That's time. What's such a shame is he just like by the time they push him, this company is a disaster. And then he goes to WWE and they don't push him until he's too like they don't really give him a run until King Booker when he's so old. Yeah. It really is a shame. Like you Missed and I opportunity. both I think I don't know that we've ever put it this way, but I think he may have been the most can't miss star that yeah. was missed on maybe ever in wrestling. Like that's hard to say, but like not that some other outside influence stopped him. Like Magnum TA maybe was bigger, but like it yeah, wasn't their that fault. Was different. That happened. But like they chose not to make him a star. Yeah. And that sucks. Uh, they fight into the crowd, which is getting very repetitive tonight. Then they do an announce table spot, which is also a repeat. Um, Steiner is talking all kinds of shit to Stevie Ray as he's just whooping his brother's ass. I do love that. And Stevie just getting more and more and more pissed off at Scott Steiner. Oh, man. Um, Steiner drags Booker back into the ring. He hits a super Samoan drop from the top rope. Fuck yeah. Booker makes a comeback, but Steiner cuts him off with a low blow. There's a huge belly-to-belly suplex by Steiner. Booker hits a Harlem side kick, then the missile drop kick off the top rope. He hits the axe kick. Medeja gives Steiner his lead pipe, and he hits Booker with it, and then he takes out the referee. Steiner locks in the Steiner recliner. Another referee comes down, and Steiner suplexes him. Um, a third referee comes down and calls for the DQ. Steiner hits him with the pipe, and then a bunch of security guards run down. He beats them all up with the pipe, too. Steiner would go on to win the belt the next month at Mayhem. I don't know why they didn't just put the belt on him here. Because, of course, they had to have a straitjacket match. It was all planned out in advance. Yeah. We're building to that big straitjacket match. I just... Booker versus Steiner is so obviously the match, right? Those are the two things that they have. I mean, you might say Goldberg should be involved in there somewhere. I don't know. I still think that Goldberg versus Booker face versus face could have made could have been something really interesting if they had ever actually gotten there. But like, I'm glad they're at least smart enough to realize, yo, we got to go with Booker versus Steiner. Like that's that's the only thing that we have. And this match was pretty good. I mean, Steiner's basically immobile at this point, though not as bad as he would become in WWE, obviously. But fuck me, like, Booker gets some good stuff out of him. All right, it's main event time. It's the match the world has come to see. Goldberg versus Chronic in a handicap match. Um, so Vince Russo set the stipulation for Goldberg that he could only get a title shot if he recreated his previous winning streak. So he has to win... 178 matches in a row. <laughs> if he loses stupidest. one match, he gets fired. Yeah, like they were going to have the patience to pull this off. Jesus Christ. This if, he only wrestled, if he wrestled on Nitro Thunder and Saturday night every week for a year, it would take over a year to recreate the winning streak. Like, I, they should honestly have done some stuff like... Every night Goldberg wrestles a gauntlet. Ten yeah. wrestlers. He's got to beat them all. Just at least in ten shows you could knock it out, right? Yeah, you could like, get there by Starcade that way. But, like, it's still fuck. 
Goldberg wins a 60-man battle royal. That counts as 60 men. Yeah, that was what I was thinking. Yeah, give him World War III. And they had just done – they were doing the same thing with Sid the year before this, although it was awesome when Sid did it. Also, the moment Sid was that doing he, it as a heel, and he was, like, dragging the referee out to the ring to beat up jobbers in other matches and make the referee count the pin for him. Like, that was heat. Yeah, that was the best. For, Sid would interfere in other people's matches, yes. power bomb them, and then, like, nope, this is a match now. I win. Yeah, and pin them both and get two wins out of it. That That's, was great. That kicked ass. But, like, basically every other incarnation of any sort of winning streak after Goldberg's original one – heatless it had already happened we'd already seen it this isn't making it better and to think that anybody wants and the thing is too like if you said it you can't get a title match until you've won 170 matches you're basically saying the next 169 goldberg matches do not matter yeah who gives a shit you're waiting for 170 chronics say that goldberg can't wrestle and they declare themselves the winners then we go backstage and the doctor says Goldberg is cleared and his music starts to play and he heads to the ring. Not as epic an entrance as he had against DDP in the same building two years before. That is true. There's also, there was something so anticlimactic about just watching an it's old like, man walk up to a table and tell another old man, yeah, he's fine. He can do it. Oh yeah, he's fine. He can wrestle. And then Goldberg just comes out like, yeah, I fucking knew the whole time. There was no suspense here. <laughs> insanely Goldberg probably just had the best match of his career against Bobby Lashley in Saudi Arabia. That is a topic for a whole other time, Steve, because that is a miracle bestowed upon us from wrestling heaven. Also, it's just because Bobby Lashley is the greatest wrestler of all time. Continue. (laughs) Chronic dominate Goldberg. Adams brings a table into the ring. Goldberg then spears Clark through a table and pins him. We're like 90 seconds into the match. The best part of this match, maybe the best part of this show, is Tony Schiavone saying, oh, I guess it's over. (laughs) And he's like, oh, no, I guess he has to beat them both. Okay. Because no one had fucking told him that. What a bunch of bullshit. Why would you not tell him? Because it makes Tony Schiavone look like a goddamn asshole. Every time this would happen to him. Like, oh, he just looks incredibly unprofessional and ill-prepared when it's not his fault. Um, Adams hits a full Nelson slam, but he only gets two. Goldberg hits the spear and the jackhammer and gets the pin in, I don't know, just under four minutes. That's our main event. And the show, like, immediately fades to black. Like, we get 10 seconds of Goldberg celebrating and we cut out. They yeah, if, if We're not you, cutting it close with Halloween Havoc this time. But if you were watching at home, it would have been, like, 10.55 when the match starts. And you would have been yeah. like, wait, what? Like, that's <laughs> weird. Unless they were going to run out of satellite time again. And it's just, like, why was this what you were building to all night? Like, I don't... I don't it's not that I don't understand the value of like Chronics a fairly hot heel tag team. If you want Goldberg to run through them, fine. That's whatever. Why does it have to be the main event? And why does it have to be three minutes? Why can't Booker versus Steiner just be the main event? I don't get it. So yeah, that's the show. It wasn't good, but it wasn't as bad as I was expecting. Yeah, as much as I've been complaining about every match and what all the characters are doing because they're just asinine, 
the actual match matches here and as the, everything was presented perfectly inoffensive yeah. i enjoyed parts of it like it's Aside from like the eight minutes that Jim Duggan spent wrestling, I in no point during this show was having a bad time, which is an unbelievable upset for this era. This might be the last. I don't know if this is the last good show they put on, but this is probably the least offensive show they put on in the last year or two. Well, so, yeah. That's a wrap for Halloween Havoc 2000. Next time, we've got what I consider the WWE equivalent of a Halloween Havoc. It's Survivor Series 2003, one of the wackier pay-per-views in WWE history. This one is going to be something special, you guys. First of all, it's a Halloween Havoc because it has Goldberg on it. So that's just a spiritual successor. But, oh, man, Steve, Steve. This is where we get Kane versus Shane McMahon. Yeah, in an ambulance match. And then we get Vince versus Taker in a buried alive match. I kind of just wish we had gotten Shane and Vince versus Taker and Kane, but that's neither here nor there. And then we get the Meat Monster Survivor Series match. Yeah, what's the heel team here? It's Brock Lesnar, Big Show, A-Train, Matt Jones, and and Matt Morgan. Yeah. Everybody's 6'10", everybody's jacked, and they're facing hardcore Holly. (laughs) Yeah. And in the main event, we've got Goldberg versus Triple H for the World Heavyweight title. This is one of the most fascinating shows that they ever put on. One of the weirdest shows they've ever put on. It's bizarre in a million ways, and has a bunch of storylines in it that we've actually barely touched on, so I'm very excited. So, yeah. Um, all that and more next time on the Lawcast. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again next time.